0: Good morning. I am excited to get into God's Word. Today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter four. We're continuing our series on overcomers, walking through the book of Revelation. So, good morning to all of our students, good morning to all of our community folks. And by the way, I'm 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 Pastor Brian, um, the lead pastor here. So I will say a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for gathering us here, online, here in person. Lord, we are united in spirit uh, by your Holy Spirit, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, attune our ears, and prepare us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11, Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, you worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. This is God's word. We continue our series, Overcomers. The title of our message today is Worship the One Who Overcame. Worship the One Who Overcame. And there are three things that Jesus is showing us in this revelation that John has written about. Number one, he is seated on the throne. Our great and awesome God, our triune God, is seated on the throne. Number two, he is is holy beyond compare. He's holy beyond compare. And thirdly, he is worthy of utmost worship. He's worthy of utmost worship. Seated on the throne, holy beyond compare, worthy of utmost worship. As we've been walking through Revelation, we essentially concluded the first of seven sections in this book. These seven sections are, as I've said earlier in weeks prior, they're, they're a lot like a baseball home run highlight. When you see one, you see the first camera shot of the pitch and the big swing, and you might see that. Guy step out of the box with somewhat of a strut as he watches the ball go over the fence. But then there'll be another camera shot. You may see the fan who catches and the folks that are scrambling to get the ball. Another shot will show you the pitcher who's just ejected. I can't believe that. Another shot might be from behind home plate where you can get a visual of the ball traveling from home plate all the way over the fence. And another shot you will see the base runner, the home run hitter, running the bases and giving a high five as he uh, touches home. It's all the same play though. There's not anything that changed in time, it's just different scenes of the same scenario. Revelation is written like that. There are seven sections and it's all the same play, but they're giving us different perspectives. They're showing us the impact of Jesus's ministry when he came on earth. When, as the people of God are living in this time between, and then when he comes back, what the power of his ministry will mean for those who serve him and for those who don't. Chapter four, we switch gears. In chapters, chapter one set up the, the, the framework for the, the book. Chapters two and three shows us the seven churches and what's going on in their individual situations. Chapter four switches to an entirely different realm and we will see today Jesus is inviting us to view the scene of heaven and frame our existence from it on earth point 1 he is seated on the throne now if you know if you don't have a red letter bible perhaps you missed it but in verse 1 it's Jesus who is speaking it's the voice of the trumpet In verse 1, where he says to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. There was a previous vision, a previous message, and now here's what I want to show you next. Jesus invites us into this scene of heaven. In verse 2, at once, John says, I was in the Spirit and behold a throne. Stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This past Tuesday, there was a very intense rain storm, and uh, I was actually here. So it was raining so hard, and in, in New York City, all but one of our umbrellas, I think, were stolen because um, we had a thief working his way through our building. Um, That's for another time, though. But anyway, so I didn't have an umbrella, and I'm trying to, how do I get from the car to the building? And so I didn't have anything to cover me. I waited until it somewhat died down, and then I just made a break for it, but not too fast, so I didn't break anything on me. And I made my way inside, drenched. One thing that I was not thinking about when I was in the process of going from my car to the building was, the sun is actually shining. What are you talking about? Here's what I mean. If you ever leave town and you jump on an airplane and it's this really yucky day and it's raining or there's a snowstorm and it's like, oh my goodness, this is so nasty. And you get into the airport and you do the whole thing and then you finally get on the plane and after takeoff, after a few minutes, you break through the clouds and you realize the sun is still shining. But the reality is, on Earth, we have this sense of here is what is happening that's pressing on us, but there's this other reality never changes. The Christian life is very much like that. You see, our weather is an ever changing reality. It's sunny, it's raining, it's cold, it's windy, it's snowing. But in our galaxy, there's one reality that never changes the sun. It's fixed, it's heat. Its position. In our existence, it's tied to its fixed reality. The fact that we are able to have sustained life on this planet is because the sun is fixed where it is. It's because its temperature is what it is, and our position is what it is, and our orbit is what it is. What Jesus is inviting us to see, what John has written about, is that this life in its spiritual reality is much like how our weather and its changing reality relates to the sun and its fixed reality. Because in this life, things are changing. There's pressure, there's suffering, there's storms of life. But then there's heaven, and there's one seated on the throne. He never changes. He was and is and is to come. And it's that reality that frames the changing, ever-changing reality that we experience on earth, Jesus reveals to us, God is on the throne. But you see, there's a problem. The problem is, is that we forget. We get so entrapped in our present circumstances, we are prone to forget that Jesus has shown us that, the, that God the Father is on the throne that God is ruling, that he is reigning, that he is in control. It is so easy to forget that. It is so easy to get caught up in our suffering. It is so easy to get caught up in the things that we've done wrong or what we need to do in our to-do list and all of that. And even beyond the pressures of life, our culture invites us to forget that reality. Modern culture tells us, this is all there is. You need to live for now. The Beatles' famous song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven or hell. It's easy if you try. That's a mantra of modern culture. This is all there is. The Beatles, in that song, they give this picture that, well, if we could imagine this, then there could be perfect harmony. I would like to challenge that idea. In our culture, if we live for the now, there are competing realities. They do not cohere with one another. Which one do we choose? Which one leads to freedom? Which one gives us real hope? There are so many that I could talk about, but I will only focus on just a couple. One reality, one story that we could live into is that of traditionalism. What do I mean? Traditionalism is a view that the good life is behind us, that the good values, the good morals, the good... People are in the past. And the suffering that we are experiencing is because we're moving away from that. And we need to do everything in our power to get back to it. We celebrate those who bring us back. We celebrate those who hold that value. And we try to live a life of holding on to what was. That's one reality that we could live into. If there is no there is no heaven. If if this is all there is, that's one reality. But then there's another reality. If there's traditionalism, then there's progressivism. Progressivism says the opposites. Pro- progressivism says the past was no good, our future is our hope. We need to do everything we can to undo the workings of the past and its regressivism so that we could live into the utopian future that we could attain. How do we do that? We use our technology. We use our focus on the individual, individual freedom. We have this sense that the things that we purchase are consuming and consuming and consuming will one day set us free. Which one is right? If this is all there is, if there is no heaven, if this is all that there is, these are two competing realities and these are only two of a myriad of many others. Progressivism tethers us to the past, or rather, traditionalism tethers us to the past, whereas progressivism tethers us to the future. But the problem is, if you look at them both, there's problems. In the past, it is very true. There was was oppression. There are bad things. There are lots of genocide and lots of oppression in many ways. Those are things that we don't want. But when we look at our technology, when we look at our individualism, when we look at you be you and what does that produce for us, and when we consider what our consuming has done for us, we have more anxiety, more depression, more narcissism. We're less relational, and we are much more fragile in the face of suffering. So if this is all there is, if there is no heaven and hell, Guess what? There is no blissful harmony. There's only tribalism. There's only fragmentation. As Christians, it's easy to get sucked into those views of the world and attribute that to what it means to be a Christian. Traditionalism would say the good guys, the people in power of the past, those were the good guys and the bad guys are trying to steal it from them. Progressivism says in the past the bad guys were in, tr- were in control, and now the good guys need to come and strip it from them. They need to take that power away. But Jesus is showing us in this scene neither of those is true. God is in control, He's seated on His throne, He is sovereign. Even in the face of the hardships that the churches, the seven churches are facing, God is in control. The thing that you need to be an overcomer is you need to know, despite the changing reality of what you experience, whatever it may be, wherever on earth you may be, God is on the throne. It brings us comfort, security, hope, and meaning. Secondly, he is, be, he is holy Beyond compare. He is holy beyond compare. Really, there's two options either there is no God or God is holy. And if there is no God, here's what Thomas Nagel says about the way we approach life and meaning. Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most things, big and small, that we do within life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. He goes on to say, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. What is he saying? He's saying if there's no God, if there's no heaven, if God is not real, if this scene is not real, Tim Keller summarizes it this way. If there's no God or life beyond this material world, then it will ultimately not matter whether you are a genocidal maniac or an altruist. In other words, if there is nothing outside of this framework of this life, and this is all that there is, then what you do, whether good or bad, it's all arbitrary. It matters not. It won't last. It's a fading glory. But if there is God and he is holy, Consider this scene. Consider the praise. Consider what Revelation is showing us in this chapter. This vision is so powerful. The vision of the throne, the vision of God, which by the way, doesn't, it's, it's, it's so remarkable. The, the God of the universe, the God of creation, the Redeemer of all things, is so amazing that even in this articulate description of the scene, there's very little said about what he, what he looks like. It only gives us an image of everything going on around him. He's so magnificent. And it harks back to some of what the Old Testament and other scriptures have shown us about when God is present or when others are present around him. Here's what I mean. In Exodus Chapter 19, Moses is invited by God himself to go up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with God. And there's just this, this amazing scene. There is smoke on the mountain, there's thunder. The people are like, okay, Moses, you, you go. We'll, we're good. We'll stay here. You know, God says to Moses, make sure they don't come here because if they do, I will break out among them. Why? Because he's so holy. Moses had to go up and the people had to stay back. And there's just this amazing scene of sight and sound when God descended on the mountain. The prophet Isaiah, in the year that Uzziah the king died in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees a vision of heaven. He's taken up. And when Isaiah sees that, he sees... The angels worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what is his reaction? I shouldn't be here. God is so holy. I'm from a people of unclean lips. I can't be here. This is too amazing. And an angel comes and takes the coal from the altar and touches his mouth and thereby cleansing him. God commissions him to go be his voice, his mouthpiece. So holy, Isaiah felt so broken, naked, sinful in God's presence. In the presence of God on the Mount Sinai, the people can't come here. No, we don't want to go up there, Moses. You go. In Ezekiel, the prophet, in chapter 1, he sees a vision of the throne. In verses 26 through 28, Ezekiel's vision of the throne describes both the throne and the brilliance of this rainbow that we see in Revelation 4 to emanate from his throne. What was his response? He fell on his face. He fell on his face. This is Ezekiel the prophet. He saw the vision of God and he fell on his face. It's too wonderful. It's too amazing. God is so holy. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul, he's defending his part of his ministry to the the people in Corinth. And he says, I saw this vision of heaven. I was taken up to the third heavens and it was so wonderful. I can't even talk about it. Humans can't speak of the things that I heard. Why? God is holy beyond compare. He's so wonderful that for the Apostle Paul, God had to send a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, Paul says, just to keep him humble based on what he saw, what he experienced. And in our passage in Revelation, 3, or Revelation 4, verses 3 through 8, he, sat, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, around the throne was a rainbow. It would make sense. You see this amazing vision of light, and we see in verse uh, down, down from there that there's this sea of glass that is around the throne like crystal in verse 6. So if you've got all this light and you've got all this crystal, what's going to happen? Boom, you get this amazing rainbow, this amazing light that emanates from the throne of God, God's very presence. He is light, In him, there is no darkness at all. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. What are those 24 elders? Well, most scholars would say they represent the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, so you've got, you know, Reuben and Judah and Simeon, and the 12 apostles apostles of the New Testament. In other words, the representation of all of God's people, his old covenant, his new covenant, all of the true Israel are represented around the throne. So you have human representation in this scene, and then you have these four living creatures and angelic representation. And in case it's not clear, you could go back and read it later. Pay attention to the prepositional phrases, what you will see and notice is that the throne is in the center and everything is in concentric circles around the throne. Read it later, verses 3 through 8. You'll see. You've got human representation, the 24 elders. You've got angelic representation, and they are all in awe of our holy God. He is holy beyond compare. The last point, he is worthy of our utmost praise. He is worthy of our utmost praise. Have you ever been upgraded on your flight, put in first class? And, you know, maybe you start to feel a little bit, man, I don't deserve to be here. But then after a while, you're like, man, it's kind of nice to be here. Could, hey, uh, could, me, could I, excuse uh, me, could I get something, right? Or have you ever been given tickets, nice seats at the ball game, nice seats at the theater, nice seats at some spectacular event? I remember I was with a friend uh, back in Harlem and he worked on Wall Street and he got tickets to the Yankees game. And so I'm like, where, do we, where are we sitting? And I was like, are we sitting up there? No wait, no, whoa, we're, whoa, this is nice, box seats, hey, we're kind of close to the field. This is like kind of scary how close we are. When you have nice seats, you enjoy where you are sitting. Think about the seats of these 24 elders when you have nice seats, you start, to, you start to get comfortable. You maybe lounge back. You kick your feet up. Man, this is so awesome. You talk about how great the seats are. Man, I can't believe this view. This is so awesome. Isn't this a great game? I mean, the team that you're watching could be losing. It'd be terrible. But you're like, man, these seats. I, I, I had that experience with my wife, Becca, and I. We were given tickets to a, a New York Giants game versus the Redskins. The Redskins, they crushed The Giants, I think it was. Well, anyways, we weren't really caring about the score. (laughs) We're like, but this is awesome. We We got seats to the game. But what is the response of those who are seated around this throne? They aren't thinking about their seats. They aren't thinking about the glory that they are experiencing. By the way, throne heaven, that's awesome. But what do they do versus... 9 through 11, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor to, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. If we live as if there is no heaven, then all the glory that we could have is a fading glory at best. As Nagel said, you could write literature for a thousand years, people could read it, but one day it will not matter. The glory of what you could do at your best, it will fade. But if you follow Jesus, if you surrender your life to him, if you decide, I don't want to hold on to my life, I would rather give it up to live the life that he has for me, you will experience True glory. The thing that progressivism, traditionalism, or any other ism promises, they cannot deliver, but Jesus can. These 24 elders, they are in forever eternal glory, yet that glory, the glory that they experience, is eclipsed by a much greater glory, the glory of our holy God, who is holy beyond compare. And he is worthy of our utmost worship. He is in control. He is seated on the throne. What story is your life tethered to? Are you tethered to trying to live out the past and hold on to it? Are you tethered to the future trying to live for it? Or are you tethered to heaven? Because if you're tethered to the former, you're going to face affliction. You're going to face suffering. You won't really have a way to deal with it. But if you're tethered to heaven, it does not matter what happens. Your life could be taken. The life of those around you could be taken. But you know one thing. God is on his throne. And he is in control. The story of redemption not only subverts all self-salvation stories, all other human ways of living, it fulfills what they cannot. Jesus brings us what every other ism claims to bring. Every other ism claims to bring glory, but the glory fades. Jesus brings us a glory that will never fade. Are you living for his glory? As a student, perhaps as you're on campus, you may, challenge, you may face things that will challenge your faith. I want to remind you, Jesus wants to remind you, God is on his throne. He is in control. As a parent, you may be seeing your child struggling in school or otherwise. I want to remind you, God is on his throne. He is in control. Perhaps you're dealing with an aging parent and not sure what to do, what facility to put an ailing mom or dad in. God is on the throne. Perhaps you're struggling in doubt or fear. You're struggling with being single. You're struggling wanting to have kids. You're struggling in your parenting. You're struggling in your career. God is on. The throne. And that reality frames whatever suffering, whatever reality you are going through right now and that you will face for the rest of your life. Our God, who is holy beyond compare, He is seated on a throne and it frames our meaning. It frames our purpose. It frames our existence on the earth. It is the reality that frames all other realities. And as we capture that, it brings us to the worship that he deserves. He is worthy of our utmost worship. Let's pray. Father, I pray that though there are many things we could justify within this life to do this or to do that, Lord, only you can justify the very meaning of our life. And I pray that as we continue to contemplate the scene of heaven as presented to us here in Revelation, that it would continue to frame whatever we face day to day. In Jesus' name, amen.